Welcome to the DNQ Podcast. Tonight we're going to be going over part two of the NASCAR iceberg. Uh, if you didn't tune in last week, we did part one that was a lot of kind of generic basic knowledge of NASCAR. Uh, Cam and I just kind of sat there, talked about it for a while. Uh, they, this is going to be a continuation of that. So uh, if you haven't listened to it, go ahead and go back, listen to that first, then listen to this one. Uh, but Cam, this is going to be an interesting tier of the iceberg. I know there's a few things on here that... Uh, you're really looking forward to a few things that you know quite a bit about the third thing on out. the list specifically <laughs> the third thing on the list exactly well, i'd say the third and the fifth or two that you know uh quite about 
quite a bit about. But anyway, starting out with number one on tier two, it's going to be John West Townley. Now, if you didn't know, John West Townley was a truck series driver. He was involved in what has to be one of the most pathetic fist fights I've ever seen uh, during a race. Um, yes. I think it was Kaz Grala or somebody else. That would make sense because I'm, uh, I'm pretty sure it wasn't anyone of note. Really. Yeah, I want to say it was Kaz Grawl that pissed him off, or somebody that's kind of like lower tier. And anyways, they start fighting, and it was just kind of more of a hugging match. They just kind of grabbed each other and then rolled around a little bit. It, well, I honestly, did have some old... respect for John West Townley after I saw the fight video, because it looked like he was trying to pull the old school DDT move on him. I mean, maybe. Um, I just didn't have the, the core strength to pull it off, I <laughs> yeah, guess. He, did. he went for it, he just didn't have <laughs> the... Uh... He couldn't finish. If he had... That would have been pretty bad, because they were still on the track, so asphalt everywhere. Yeah, his mouth was right in checks. His core strength just could not cash out. It just, it wasn't going well. Um, well, anyways, that guy, uh, he was always known to be a bit of an asshole, kind of a daddy's money kind of guy. Really, the only reason uh, he was in the sport was because his family had money. Um, make a long story short, uh, one of his ex, uh, I don't know if it was ex-wife or ac- uh, ex-girlfriend. Was it ex-wife? I believe it was, I'll say it was ex-wife. ex-wife. She had uh, split up with him, and she was seeing some other guy. And so John West Townley didn't take kindly to that. He broke in. Uh, it was a breaking and entering situation. Broke into their house, and his ex-wife's new boyfriend did not take kindly to John West Townley breaking in. And John West Townley was shot and killed on the site. And uh, he passed away in the hospital shortly thereafter. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's the story of John West Townley, a very pathetic truck series driver and kind of just a pathetic human being at large. Now, as far as the, that whole situation went with him, he um, I'm pretty sure the wife filed for divorce in February and the shooting because happened. he was abusive. Yes, this it happened in uh, October is when the shooting happened. So I'm not entirely sure if this divorce had been finalized or what. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe it hadn't, so technically, I guess they're still married. Um, anyway, she filed for divorce because he had, you know, abused her recently. I believe in 2019, it says that he got uh 12 months probation for making his wife feel a reasonable fear for her own life. So glad she got out of there, yeah. and um, yeah. kind of glad he's not going to be an issue for her anymore. Yeah, uh, there's one kind of man. That I mean, you can even trust, though that's a dead man, even though you know, the, obviously, this whole situation is not gonna sit well on her mind or the rest of her existence. But oh, yeah, don't gotta worry about him coming back, I suppose. So that's no John sure. West Townley. As far as his racing career went, um, he was ran a few races uh, in the Xfinity series. He was mostly a truck guy. Um, think he. And what three, four full-time seasons in trucks? Uh, only one win. So I'm not even sure he ever ran. Did he run full-time? Okay, he no, actually no. Okay, looking at racing, okay, he ran two full-time seasons. Yes, uh, I guess three nearly full-time seasons. Or no, he did three full-time because then 23 and 23. I forgot they uh, added that. But yeah, uh, so he ran a few full-time seasons. His average finish was like 17th. His average start was 15th, and mind you, he was in a pretty well-funded truck, so really yeah. not much of an excuse. There. He actually he... raced on the same team with um, Timothy Peters, who's from my area. 
uh, Red yeah. Horse, and Red Horse had some pretty good guys on that team, and Timmy won several races itself, so not a bad team to be on. He just uh, didn't do too well. I mean, his best season was eighth in points, so not terrible, but nothing to really write home about either. No, no, he wasn't going anywhere. So, yeah. But yeah. That's the first entry on the iceberg. Um, second entry out here, we've got the 2010 Daytona 500 pothole. Now, Cam and I were just looking into this because obviously it's been a while and that was 12 years ago and neither of us really remembered too uh, much about it. But, uh, Cam, I'll let you go ahead and take that one. So, thinking back on it, I, I only remembered the red flag. Like, that was the only part about the race yeah. that was memorable to me was that they did red flag the race because it was a pothole. Because obviously that brought back memories uh, of something we touched on on the podcast, episode one of the Iceberg series with the, the Martinsville pothole. Um, so that, that brought back sad, sad memories for me. Glad that nobody got hit by flying pieces of asphalt like Jeff Gordon did that day. Um, but yeah, they were running the 2010 Daytona 500. And uh, a little over halfway through the race, uh, lap 122, they threw a red flag, which lasted a little over 40 minutes because there was a 15-inch long, 9-inch wide, 2-inch deep pothole in um, the seams around turns 1 and 2. So this is a pretty sizable pothole. I mean, the thing being over a foot long um, easily could dips the tire down in there and, and rip a side skirt off a car. Um, so, all the cars are ordered to park on pit road. They go out there and patch it. Uh, I'm not entirely sure what they use to patch racetracks like that, but to get asphalt-like substances to cure in under an hour is pretty impressive. Um, and then they put like the cars a, back out there and they race. Isn't it like a rubberized sort of substance? Like, you pour it in, it's kind of like rubbery, and then it hardens? I think so. It's like a... I think it's like an epoxy, actually. Yeah, sort of. It's kind of like that JB Weld stuff yeah. that they sell at Lowe's. And, but it sets up really fast, worse. and it's hard. But I mean, this they're doing a patch job. job. This is the last year before they repave Daytona. Oh, that's um, true. So they did repave it right after this. So it's kind of like the Atlanta race we had last year. Yeah, sort of. I mean, And you know what makes it worse, too, is like that's 2010. This is like early in the era of like the splitter, so so if a car had hit that wrong, they would have been fucking destroyed. Right. I think I think the biggest thing that they were worried about was, I mean, obviously at Daytona they're gonna try to get the cars like low and out of the wind as as possible. So they were. I, I would have been most worried about a car driving over that pothole and like dipping the bodywork down while in the pothole and then ripping the side skirts off because I could definitely see that happening. But luckily they stopped the race before anybody was damaged by it. So yeah. And uh, interesting thing to note, the winner of that race back in 2010, that was Jamie McMurray. Old Jamie Mac. Kind of continuing his trend of just winning all the big races and then just ceasing to exist uh, in the immortal plane. Like, he just kind of shows up, wins the crown jewels, and then for the rest of his career just kind of rides around, I guess. Yeah, so Jamie Mack, actually, that year, uh, he went on to win the Brickyard 400 that same season. 
Uh, so he won two crown jewel races in that one year, and they're the only two races he won that year. Yeah, so, it was an impressive year because honestly, he only has seven wins in NASCAR. Yeah. NASCAR's top division, so two wins in a year is pretty dang good, considering they were both crown jewels. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think and Jamie won his second start, third start, something like that. Yeah, we were talking a little bit about that. I think it was his second start. He was filling in for Sterling. Was it Sterling? Yeah, he was filling in for Sterling at Charlotte, and he won like his second entry. And everybody's like, "Oh my god, this guy! He's the guy! He's the next big star!" And then, well, he wasn't the next Jeff Gordon, but he was <laughs> pretty decent. He was all right. Jamie was, uh, he was one of those guys that was like, he's always there. You know, he yeah. he always showed up and every once in a blue moon, he'd be up there at the front. And it was usually in the big races. I mean, Jamie, like he's a Daytona 500 winner. He's a Brickyard 400 winner. He won the, um, he won the all-star race before. He won a Rolex 24. I mean, he's, He's done yeah. pretty much all the big stuff. He was rookie of the year in 2003. I mean, for a guy that only has seven wins, this is a really accomplished career. And that takes me back, remember the argument that we were having with all of our buddies a couple years ago. Would you rather have the career of Jamie McMurray or Clint Boyer? Oh, yeah, we did argue about that for like three for days. For a long time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was uh that was an ongoing thing. And I of course I picked Jamie McMurray because I mean the Daytona five hundred. He won that. Clint Boyer didn't do that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean I would say Jamie McMurray was essentially like if Paul Menard had a Scosche Moore talent. Like like he brought yeah. the home like he brought the car home clean. He brought the car home just about every single time. More often Very low DNF rate. Um, solid, consistent driver. And then occasionally, he'd just come out there and win it because that's what he did. He had eight Xfinity Series wins, according to this uh, Wikipedia page, and uh, one win in the Truck Series, which is interesting. I didn't know he ever even ran trucks. He only ran uh, 25 races. Yeah, apparently his uh, Truck Series win came in 2004 at Martinsville. Yes. And his last truck series race was in 2008 at Martinsville. So apparently he ran a lot of the Martinsville races, I would I would assume. Everyone loves Martinsville, so yeah. Oh, yeah. Might as well. Everybody. That would be the one I'd run. Yeah. So Yeah, that's the uh, 2010 Daytona Pothole. The next one on the list now. All right, ladies and gentlemen, this <laughs> next one needs a bit of an introduction. Uh, before I hand it off to Cam, I'm going to let Cam tell the story in all of its absolute uh, detailed glory. But... <laughs> One thing you got to know about Cam is he runs a specific number uh, on everything, uh, whether it's in an iRacing league or uh, in any video game in general, or even his go-kart in real life. Yep. He runs the number 57. Now, he does not run that for Clint Boyer. No, no, no. He runs that for a driver by the name of Russell Phillips. Because Russell Phillips and his impact on the sport, well, his impact on the sport was nothing compared to the impact on uh, on Cam. <laughs> This impact on the sport was nothing like the sport's impact on him, let me tell you. Yeah, that's that's a good way to put it. So, Cam, go <laughs> ahead and uh, tell the story of Russell Phillips. All right, so, uh, Russell Phillips, uh, he's from the Charlotte, North Carolina area, and he was an aspiring race car driver. Young man. Um, he knew Ricky Hendrick and all that bunch. They all kind of came up together. Uh, but Russell, he, he didn't really have the backing. 
so he was kind of going to be just a career guy, maybe make it to the Bush series. He was running um, the Sportsman series at the time, which later ended up becoming like the Canon E series. Um, but this is all happening in the early to mid 90s. So Russell was running a race at the Charlotte Motor Speedway. And a spin happens off of turn four. Now, Russell's nowhere near the front. This wreck's happening between the fourth and fifth place drivers. Russell's running about 12th. So the two cars start spinning. He's trying to woe it up. And he sees his, he sees his opening. He's just like Cold Trickle in Days of Thunder. He sees his opening. He hits the gas and he goes for it. Tries to squeeze between the spinning car and the wall. Well, the spinning car catches him on the left side. And launches his car into the air. Roof first. Russell Phillips goes through the catch fence. And hits a light pole. That's right in front. Of the exit of turn 4 grandstands. At the Charlotte Motor Speedway. And the entire top of his car. Disappears. It's gone. Pieces of the car are in the grandstands. Pieces of the car are on the track. The car continues flipping. Slides down to the inside of the track. Horrible looking crash. No one really reacts to it because, I mean, if you've watched racing enough, you've seen some bad crashes. We've all seen a car or two go into the catch fence. But something was different about this one. Nobody could see Russell. The whole roof of the car is gone and Russell's not there. No one really knew what happened. He gone. Until the team who was about 32nd on pit road saw something rolling down pit road. It was a little white ball looking thing rolling down pit road at a pretty high rate of speed. They didn't realize until it stopped that it was a helmet. It was Russell's helmet. And Russell was still in the helmet. Jesus. When the safety workers got to the car, they all show up. You know how the safety workers do. They rush in. They're they're shaking a leg. You know, they're moving. They're trying to get everything done fast. They roll up on the truck. They jump out of the truck. The ambulance pulls up. The guy runs over to the car. And they just stops. And everyone stops. And no one does anything. Because there's nothing to be done. Because when they look in Russell's car... Everything from the rib cage down is in the seat. Everything from the rib cage up is gone. There's pieces of Russell in the catch fence. Half of half of his forearm with a hand attached to it is literally wrapped up in the fencing of the catch fence. Of course, I just covered his head is rolling down pit road. And some of the fans in the first five or six sections of Grandstand are spattered in blood. So Russell Phillips got cheese graded by the catch fence at the exit of turn four at the Charlotte Motor Speedway. Now, why do I tell you this and why do I know so much about this? Because when I was 10 years old, (laughs) 
I found a video of this online. And it was the most metal shit I've ever seen in my life. And from that day forward, I said, I'm running 57. Because everybody deserves to know about this fucking guy. And I would like to point out that in the official accident investigation report, they specify that it wasn't just his hand in the catch fence. Mm-mm, no. I don't know. I'm going to let they you tell this found, part. This is your favorite part. They also found his scrotum hanging from the catch fence. I shit you not. And they Balls didn't have to mention this. to the wall. Literally. Russell Phillips is the only NASCAR driver that has ever literally driven balls to the wall. Balls to the wall, baby. Absolute legend of the sport. I remember when... So I had heard the story. Never lifted. Never lifted either. Oh, no. No, he never lifted. Not a fucking quitter. Um, I, I had heard the story, minus the scrotum part, because I, I don't even think Cam was fully aware of that part. Oh, no, I knew about it, but, but I, I but wanted we were, you uh, to say his scrotum was hanging on the catch. We were, uh, well, no, 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 I knew, I know that you know about it now, but I'm saying when we first watched this incident with Ashton. Oh, no, when I was like 10, I had no idea. When we watched this video with Ashton in the chat, and then he went and found the accident report, I don't know if you knew about the scrotum part. Mm-mm, I didn't then. I didn't. Um, but Ashton's reading this report, and he gets to that part, and it's like 3 in the morning. And we're sitting here just dying of laughter and we're like this is horrible we should not be laughing at this but that's where the balls we, to the wall comment we, came in. we are god-awful people and we're going to hell but we're laughing <laughs> and oh my god yeah it's it's definitely one of the wildest stories that i think never gets any publication it is in my opinion the worst crash that has ever happened in a nascar race oh definitely this, like, like it's there's fucking nothing terrible this is bad you don't I mean, you'd be hard-pressed in any other race, in any other form of motorsport, to find an instance of somebody's decapitated head rolling down pit road. I mean, generally, if a car is, if a car is crashing and the driver is injured, you know, the remains, they kind of stay in the car. Everything kind of stays contained. Not on this day. But with Russell Phillips, it was body parts everywhere i mean head on pit road arm in the catch fence audience splattered by blood it was just the most gruesome it, it's like something out of a george romero movie it it yes. absolutely like you couldn't script something more gruesome than what happened <clears throat> now the worst part of the whole story or I, well i don't know if it's the worst part or if it's the most badass part but not only did they not tell everyone to leave, not only did they not just throw a tarp over the car and wheel it back to the garage area and let the coroner come, they cleaned this shit up and finished the race. The race continued after this happened. They just fucking continued. <laughs> they, just, they just cleaned it up got everything off the track they fixed the catch fence which took a while they picked the head up off pit road they they got the arm out of the catch fence and they said all right boys and rack them and stack them threw the green flag again <laughs> fucking absurd fucking nuts now 
if you're not impressed by this story, or if you think we're awful people for glorifying this story, let me tell you this. It's been a whole lot of NASCAR drivers die. Most recent one, Dale Earnhardt. Now with Dale's death, everybody's sad about it. But you look at it and you say, well, look at all the good that came from that. Look at all the safety measures that came after Dale died that have kept everyone else safe. Same thing for Russell Phillips. They reinforced the roof of the cars. And I can think of several people that wouldn't be alive today if they hadn't done that. Oh, yeah. Uh, Carl Edwards. <laughs> Ryan Newman, for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, they reinforced, you know, the thing that they call the Earnhardt bar, that the bar that goes up along the middle of the windshield. Yep. They did. Dale ran with that. It was mm-hmm. Earnhardt's idea to put it in the car. And why did Earnhardt have the idea to put it in the car? Because he knew what happened to Russell Phillips. Yeah. They also moved all the light poles at the racetracks further away from the racetrack. Which, I mean, really should have been done a lot sooner. But yes. at least uh, at least they moved them. That was another good thing. And they changed the catch fencing. Yep. So, so a lot of good did come from it. Uh, an absolutely gruesome story. Uh, just... And the fact that you can find a video of this incident and, like, there are parts where you can freeze frame it and say, like, oh, yeah, uh, that that's half of a body. Like, that... Yes. It's it's absolutely insane. Um, motorsports are brutal. I'd say the only thing I can think of that's, like, more gruesome than that would be, like, the Le Mans crash of 55. Yeah. Where and and that's car- just because fire, and it killed a bunch of people. Well, it wasn't even fire. It was like the car flew into well, the crowd the, and just the, decapitated Well, in the, in the video... In the video of the Le Mans incident, you could see, like, the driver of the Mercedes that hit the fucking other Mercedes just get mm-hmm. catapulted out of the car. You could just see him flying. Yeah. Which is fucking nuts. It absolutely is. But, yep, that's why I run 57. I've got, I respect Russell Phillips more than I respect a lot of people. Because that man... Loved something, and he loved it enough to literally go out there and die for it. And he went balls to the wall. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah, that's the story of Russell Phillips. Uh, I feel like there's going to be, a, like, I mean, if we had listeners, there would be people that listen to that. And they're like, there's no way that's true. There's no way that actually happened. Because literally, nobody talks about this. Yep, nobody, nobody's up- heard about the Russell Phillips wreck. I've you asked look up so many people. NASCAR crashes, and you think about like, oh, what are the worst crashes in NASCAR? They always Nobody show you the Carl Edwards Talladega crash. They show you the Brad Keselowski flipping over the wall crash. They show you, yeah. I mean, everybody knows about Dale's crash. They show you all the flippy crashes. Hell, you might even see the Michael McDowell qualifying wreck, but ain't none of them motherfuckers gonna show you the Russell Phillips wreck. <laughs> Yeah, nobody knows about it. It's crazy how, and I feel like that's kind of by design. I feel like a sport, when something that terrible happens, they kind of try to put that under the rug because it's sort of like the Tony Renna incident with IndyCar. They're like, yes. yeah, if the footage of this ever gets out, IndyCar is done. Like, we're we're done. We're not racing. Now, as far so, as as far as like racing incidents like this, because you mentioned uh, you mentioned the Le Mans crash. The only one that I know of that's worse 
I think it looks worse than the Russell Phillips wreck is the Gordon Smiley wreck. Oh, yeah, he fucking exploded, dude. Gordon Smiley's crash was fucking horrific. I mean, not yeah. to mention he was literally going twice as fast. Yeah, Gordon Smiley. So if, if you guys at home don't know that story, basically Gordon Smiley was like a part-time IndyCar driver. He wasn't like full-time. He didn't know as much about Indy. Really, his main passion was uh, sports car racing. Mm-hmm. But every year he would try the Indy 500 because he really wanted to win the Indy 500. And he goes out there for qualifying. And, and I think this was back when Indy was doing you know, their single car. They still do single car qualifying. Yeah, it was during his qualifying um, run. And basically... Everybody out there was like, man, the track's really hot. There's not very much grip out there. You got to take it easy. And Gordon Smiley says, I'm going to drive this thing just like I did when the track was 20, 20 degrees cooler. And well, he comes well, out of the let's not Let's not gloss over the fact that like Gordon Smiley is not a favorite to make the race. No, like, yeah. He's, he's going to have to go out there it. and fucking send it if he's going to make it. Absolutely. And so he did. Like His corner speed going through the corner is about three or four miles an hour quicker. Yeah, so the way they do Indy qualifying is like, what, four laps, and they average them together. Yes. So he had already run two laps, and he was like fifth on the board. Like, he was fucking flying, because everyone else is taking it easy. Everybody else is scared. Gordon Smiley's out there trying to make the show. Yep, and he comes out of, I believe, turn two, and again, he was going a good five or six mile an hour faster than anybody else, which, if you know racing i mean five mile an hour more on an oval circuit is pretty damn significant and uh he gets a little bit loose coming out of the corner and he goes to counter steer which was his biggest issue like to this day i i will die on the hill of if gordon smiley had not counter steered he'd still be alive because what happened was he counter steers and like what happened so many times is the car gripped it just caught and as soon as he counter steered that car shot to the right opposite direction of what it was spinning straight into the wall and the thing about IndyCar is they got so much downforce, so much momentum, that when that momentum shifted into the wall, it wasn't like a stock car spinning out where, you know, you spin out and, like, maybe 20% of your momentum is going into the wall and 80% is sliding parallel. This was a car which literally hit the wall head-on at 215 miles an hour in the 80s. This was not a car built to hit a wall at 200 miles an hour plus. Not to mention that at, at this point, in the 80s, the wall was just concrete. It was just concrete. There was no safer barriers. That was not a thing yet. And Gordon Smiley's car just... Exp- I mean, it, it, I, in the words of Darrell Waltrip, it disintegrated. Yeah, it, it the was car gone. exploded. Yeah. It, you, could, you can watch the video, and in slow motion, the car just kind of... It, it just disappears. Um, as does Gordon. I, I don't know how much of his remains were left. I I can't imagine there was much left of him. Uh, because yeah, I, just a giant fireball. And being really the added. actual like Indy 500 qualifying, the footage for it is like way higher quality than for the Russell oh, Phillips wreck, which makes yeah. it way worse. And when you watch this video, too, I mean, like, we watched it, Cam, and the thing is, like, after he hits the wall, you look at what's left. You're like, okay, there's the engine block sliding down the track. There's the fuel cell on fire. Where's everything else? Gone. (laughs) It's just gone. You can only find, like, two of the tires. Yep. That's it. Yeah, one of them's, like, rolling down the track. The other one's just, like, halted in its fucking tracks. There was one stuck at the catch fence. 
Mm-hmm. And the car wasn't even tall enough. It didn't touch the catch fence. The tire just ended up there. Shit was bad. Yeah. If you've ever if you've ever gone like 300 miles an hour on iRacing and hit the wall and broke the physics of iRacing, that's basically what Gordon Smiley did, but in real life. Yes. Uh, he broke physics. Uh, and it was very gruesome. It was, it was really sad, too, because, I mean, Gordon Smiley, he was one of them drivers that he could have he could have been real good. I mean, he was really good at sports car racing. He was really good in Indy. If he had a little bit more backing and then had lived a little bit longer, I think I think eventually he would have got that Indy 500. But, yep, that's the Russell Phillips story and the bonus story of uh, Gordon Smiley. Very, very brutal incident there. The next thing on the list, on the, the iceberg here, we got Mark Martin's illegal carburetor spacer. I had Cam fill me in on this one because I had vaguely heard about it. I didn't remember the full story. In essence, uh, this one's a pretty simple story. Mark Martin, uh, what year was this, Cam? 1990. Yeah, so in 1990, Mark Martin was pretty much leading the championship. He was one of the championship's favorites, as he was so many times in his career. Um, and So many times. I, I guess there was a, a thing in the rule book that said your carburetor spacer's got to be of a certain size. And according to Cam and the way he told the story was uh, no, nobody really abided by the rule. You know, everybody pretty much had illegal carburetor spacers. They all kind of knew that every team was doing it, but... Nobody was really narking on anybody because it was like, okay, whatever, we're all doing it. Well, Mark Martin wins a race, gives him a pretty handy points lead, and Richard Childress, the car owner for the driver that he beat in that race, goes over to NASCAR and says, yeah, Mark Martin's got an illegal uh, carburetor spacer. And so NASCAR takes a look at it. Um, They dock him pretty much all of his points for that race, and from that point on, I mean, he did rest the season, just he couldn't get the points lead back. It wasn't going the way he wanted it to go, and a lot of people uh, attribute that Penalty to basically ending the entire season. He was penalized 46 points in total. Um, the the winning, apparently, the win still stands in the record book, but uh, he did lose the points. And Dale Earnhardt won his title that year in 1990 by 26 points. So that penalty literally is the reason Mark Martin is not a champion to this day. And the salt in the wound there is just that he was not the only driver on the track doing that. In in reality, most of them probably were. Well, so. all right. So the the deal is in in the nineteen ninety Daytona five hundred. Um. So basically, you've got like your your air breather, right? You got your carburetor, you got your manifold, all that stuff. Um, at the Daytona five hundred in February, it was really cold. Um. So one of the things that will help when a car is sucking in really cold air like that, is to give more space for it to travel um, so that it, you know, it doesn't... It just works better when the air is not that cold. So if you give it more space to heat up um, while it's technically in the engine, I guess it works better. I'm kind of car dumb, but that's how they explained it. That's how Mark Martin explained it. I listened to him talk about it a bunch. So at Daytona, they... The NASCAR rule book says you could have uh, a two-inch like difference there. But at Daytona, they didn't want to use carburetor spacers because they're already using restrictor plates. So they allowed them to weld the manifold on there. So th- the weld essentially is going to add more space anyway. And that gave them an extra inch, which the rule book says two. 
They let him weld it at Daytona. So now you got three. And everybody did it at Daytona because it was cold. When they got to Richmond, which I think the Richmond race was run in like early April or something. Might have been in March even. They get there and like on Saturday it's sleeting. Like it's literally in the 20s when they're running this race. So the Roush team says, well, when it was cold last time, they let us do a three-inch spacer. So we're going to do that. So that's what they did. And it cost them the championship. <laughs> yep, they went out there and they did it. NASCAR penalized them 46 points. And Dale won by 26. So essentially, if that doesn't happen, Mark Martin's your champion in 1920. I meant 1990 by 20 points. Man, this career was 1920. This motherfucker's been around for a minute. But yeah, <laughs> 1990 by 20 points. So, sorry about your luck, Mark Martin. But them children's boys got you. Yep, it was some bullshit. But uh, next thing up on the iceberg, we got Jeff Gordon T Rex car. Uh, this is a story that I feel like a lot of NASCAR fans are. Pretty familiar with, obviously, a lot of YouTube channels kind of talked about this. I know Slap Shoes, I think, made a video about it. Um, but in essence, this was a car that was so good that NASCAR basically said, do not ever run this car again. And the, uh, the crew chief, uh, or car chief, Ray Evernham, he says, well, what, is it illegal? And NASCAR said, no, it's not illegal, but it will be next week. So don't bring <laughs> it back to the track. Yeah. Basically... The thing with the, and it's just sort of like this is what makes a good crew chief. The thing that Evernham and, and Knauss as well could do is they could look at the rule book and it wasn't about what was written, it was about what wasn't in the rule book. And they would mm-hmm. use that to build these just bad fast cars. And this T Rex car that Jeff Gordon had was just so far above and beyond the competition, it might as well have been in a class of its own. It was like taking a cup car versus a go cart, it was insane. Yep. This this thing had. And uh yeah, NASCAR basically so look, changed the book the next week, said nope, it's no longer legal, but it was. Here's just here's just a few things um that were different about this car. Alright. So Ray Evernham has come clean about a bunch of the stuff that they did with this particular car. So they had everybody that's a Jeff Gordon fan will know. They had this car that they called Blacker, right? It was basically the 11th chassis that came off of Hendrick's production line for Jeff Gordon. Uh, And they ran that car at a bunch of different tracks, and it won a bunch of races. So they took this car to Charlotte, uh, I believe in the fall of 96. And it runs okay, but it seems like other teams are kind of catching up to them. Like the Gibbs cars are running pretty good. The, The children's cars are beating them. So, Ray Evernham's like, all right, we need to build another car. So they go to a test day, because obviously the Hendrick uh, shop's like right there next to to the racetrack at Charlotte. And they show up with this car, and Ray Evernham doesn't really tell anybody about it. Now, what has basically happened is that Rick and Ray went to the shop and told all the guys of all the different you know, aspects of the race team. So there's there's a guy that just works on shocks. There's a guy that just works on driveline components. There's a guy that just works on motors. There's the aero guy, all that stuff. He goes in and tells all them, unlimited resources, 
make the best shit you can that's within the rule book as of right now. Just just gives them free reign. Do whatever you want. Figure it out. So this car shows up and all the stuff that's different about it is masked. Like it's all inside the car. So Ray saw an opportunity where everybody else was running like steel parts. Everything was built essentially just to not break, right? So Ray yeah. decides he's going to build the car lighter. Not a very uh not a very revolutionary thing to say, but nobody else was doing it. So they show up with like aluminum parts instead of steel parts. And they like they do everything that way. They show up with aluminum drive shafts. They show up with hollow axles instead of solid steel ones. Uh, the gears are lighter. The rear end's lighter. Everything's lighter. They're cutting weight everywhere they can. They also raise the floor pan in the car and drop the frame rail so that they could get underbody aero, which is something that the next gen car just did. And they were doing this in 1997. They made the chassis stiffer. They moved the shocks outside of the frame rails because everyone was doing it inside. And all the shock stuff basically came from a bunch of people that work for Penske. And everybody knows Penske shocks and racing are great. So they go out there. And they don't run very fast with this brand new car that's supposed to be super fast. It's actually like a half second slower than the old car. So... Jeff comes back in. They change everything on the car. So they take out like the 1,400 springs and put in like 400-pound springs. And Jeff goes out there, runs another lap, and Ray's looking at the stopwatch. And he sees, he's just looking at the, you know, the 10th digit that's after the speed number or the time of the, the lap. And it shows a 4. And the other car was running a 2. So he's thinking, oh, it's actually still slower. But he didn't look at the second mark because they actually picked up eight tenths on the lap. <laughs> so they went from a 31.2 to a 30.4 just by changing the springs. So they made a breakthrough, obviously, with the car and the underbody arrow and cutting all this weight and putting all these different shock packages on it. And the car was just untouchable. So they take it to the 1997 All-Star Race. They whoop the field. And they're sponsored by Jurassic Park, which was the new movie, out. And that's where they call it the T-Rex. So essentially, this whole thing is just the brainchild, the, the masterpiece of Ray Evernham's time at Hendrick Motorsports. Yes. And yes, what Dirt said earlier is absolutely true. <laughs> so yeah, it, it they was... they come out, you know, they do all the victory lane stuff. Everything's great. Uh, Bill France says you need to pick up the phone and call your boss and tell him that this car is illegal. And Ray's like, no, it's not illegal. It went through inspection. It passed. It fits all the rules. It's fine. And Bill France just looks at Ray Evernham and said. Well, it won't be legal tomorrow. 
So. Yep. <laughs> this this is the car that, that that made the rule book more strenuous. There's always one. <laughs> it's always one. So yeah, yeah the T Rex car was just. Ah, uh, if you're a Jeff Gordon fan, the the T Rex car just gives you tingles. What could have been if he was allowed to race that? Well, what what could have been if Ray Evernham had stayed at Hendrick Motorsports? Oh, exactly, and not gone off to uh, Dodge uh, and all that bullshit that he tried to do. Yeah, and then uh, we'll talk a little bit about Aaron Crocker later in the uh, iceberg. But oof. Yep, that's that. Uh, moving on to the next thing on the iceberg, we've got the Bristol crossover gate. So obviously, if you mm. ever watched a race at Bristol, mm. you notice they got all the haulers. In the infield of the track, that's where all the haulers are. That's where some of the garage space is. And uh, obviously, well, they got to get the haulers in there somehow. How do they do it? Well, they got a gate that goes from the outside wall of the track down the banking of the turn. And uh, then there's a little inlet to the infield. So basically two gates, one on the top, one on the bottom to lay you down um, and to get through the actual track. Now, it used to be, back before the safer barrier, that uh, there was really nothing separating a car from this gate. And uh, obviously, being on the outside wall of the track, coming out of, uh, is it turn two or turn four? It's turn, turn four. four, right? Yeah. yeah turn so four. coming out of turn four, at that point, your car is naturally sliding up the track. The inertia is kind of arcing your car up towards the wall. And if you catch this opening in the wall, uh, obviously it's not good. And Mike, uh, Michael Waltrip and Mike Harmon both learned that lesson the hard way. Uh, Michael Waltrip, I believe, in a race, and Mike Harmon during practice. Yes. Um, but the Michael Waltrip incident is absolutely uh, notorious. A lot of people know about it. A lot of people talk about it and have seen it. Um, but there was nothing of Waltrip's car left. I mean, he hit this gate. The car caught it. It went from like 120 mile an hour down to nothing. And just pretty much immediately... Darrell Waltrip sitting there in the infield. He's watching the race. He's like, oh, my God, I just saw my brother die. And then Mike Waltrip, he's still in the driver's seat. There's no car around him. All that's left is roll cage and a seat. And he's still sitting there, and he's holding on to the wheel, and he's like, I'm alive. How am I alive? You know, and he, he stands up. He literally stands up out of the car after the race has been flagged. He stands up and just walks away. Just walked <laughs> off. <laughs> and Daryl Waltrip says, "How are you alive?" Uh, oh my God, it was. It's like if if anybody's if you're listening, if you've ever been to a little short track, every short track has this thing. Yeah, every short track's got that gate. It's literally it's just like they took a big ass metal bar, they put hinges on one side, they put a guardrail on the front, and that's all it is. And if a car hits it going 80 or 100 miles an hour, it just bends it. And then you're basically hitting the wall straight on. And then you're on. just it's hitting the end of a concrete wall. Yes. So that's what and happened it, to both Michael Waltrip and Mike Harmon. Yep, and it was very similar. Both of their cars just disintegrated. Like, it basically, it, it's, it's almost eerie to see because, like, I've seen cars, you know, hit the end of a wall. And... Like, maybe they're not carrying enough speed, or the end of the wall is, like, a little more blunt or whatever. But the car, like, hits it, and the car stays intact. It just, like, crushes the front end. Still bad, but, you know. But no, these guys hit the wall, and from, like, the point of the car that hit the wall, 
everything to the right side went away. And everything to the left side just went back out on the track. Yep. And in the case uh, of Mike Harmon, when the left side of his car went back on the track, he was in practice, and like there was another car coming through three and four that hit the half of the car that Mike Harmon was still sitting in. Yep, just t-boned him. Just t-boned the piece of car that's going down the track, and luckily it it like he hit him maybe four feet. Probably not even four feet, like two or three feet behind where Mike was sitting. Like so, he hit the rear part of the car as it was spinning down the track. I mean, if he if he hits a couple more feet up, Mike Harmon's dead. Like he he just gets hit by a car, no protection. Well, let this be a lesson. You can't kill the Harmonator. No, you can't. You can't. And I will tell you, I will tell you, in Bristol, Tennessee, there is an Applebee's. Oh yeah, and that's the only thing that saved him. I mean, I could see it. He had the power of the Applebee's just fueling him, and he was able to uh, walk away from that incident. Um, one thing that I should note is uh, the Michael Walter crash was pretty much the result, uh, or it it caused. It was the creating factor in the greatest NASCAR commercial of all time. And that was a uh, Napa Auto Parts commercial, and back when NASCAR commercials actually used to be pretty funny. Um, Michael Waltrip sitting at the uh, Napa counter, and I guess he's doing like an autograph signing and appearance, you know. And a fan comes up, and he's having him sign all these diecasts, and he's telling him, "Oh yeah, you know, this is your uh, this is your Daytona car from 2003, and oh, this is your uh, this is your Michigan car from this race or that race." And finally, he gets a box that's just a bunch of car parts that are just destroyed, like like he'd taken a hammer to it, and he dumps out this box of car parts onto the counter. He says, "That's your Bristol car." Sign one of the bigger pieces. <laughs> to this day, it is the greatest commercial I've ever seen in my life. That's and, and Mikey hilarious. Just, Mikey just looks at him with this blank stare. <laughs> Dude, I die every time. It's it's great. I can't believe uh, I can't believe neither one of them died. I honestly can't believe that. Oh uh, yeah, it's insane. Like the luck. Like we're, honestly, we just got done talking about the Russell Phillips wreck. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can't believe they both survived that. If we lived in a right-hand drive country, they would be dead. <laughs> and I, I wish, I wish they had the technology at the time to track like the G forces that they both oh, experienced yeah. when they hit that wall. Oh my Had god! To be insane. Had to be absolutely insane. But yeah, that's the Bristol Crossover Gate. It was really dangerous. Kind of still is. Um, it's not as dangerous because it's a little bit sturdier now, but. Uh, yeah, back in the day, it was brutal. Yeah, they stiffened her up and threw some safer barrier stuff on there, so should yeah. be all right. Next up on the iceberg, we've got Eric McClure. Now, Cam and I both aren't really 100% sure why Eric, Eric McClure is on here. Eric McClure is notable for really one thing in his NASCAR career, uh, and that is he was involved in one of the worst incidents in terms of G-forces uh, of all time. That was in the Xfinity series, I believe. Or was it Cup? Um, Maybe it was, I don't remember which series he was even in, but at Talladega, uh, he got sideways on the backstretch, got involved in somebody else's incident. It was a big pileup, and he hit the inside wall pretty much in excess of yeah, 180 miles an hour. it was Xfinity Series race. Okay, so it was in the Xfinity Series, and he hit that inside wall in excess of 180 miles an hour. He hit it so hard that the G-forces of the impact alone lifted the car off the ground, all four tires up in the air. 
nearly flipped it, but then it came back down, kind of settled down on all four tires, and he... He was pretty much out. Uh, like, he was out when they got to the car. Oh, yeah, he was knocked out. He, he got a concussion. He was in the hospital for a couple days after that. Um, took a pretty severe injury, pretty bad beating. Uh, and then, unfortunately, in 2019, he succumbed to some uh, health issues that he had been diagnosed with that I guess had gone undiagnosed for a long time, and he passed away at the age of 42. Um, but yeah, that's the story of Eric McClure. He was in a really bad wreck, and then later on, after he retired, he passed away. I'm not, not, I'm not sure, sure if the, the I'm not sure if the two are connected in some way, maybe? I don't know. Maybe. I mean, because you'd think like something neurological could have happened when he took that hit, but I, I don't know. But anyways, we'll Maybe go back to something the, uh, that we completely missed. So if it, you're a listener could, that knows, tell us. I mean, the DNQ podcast isn't really where you come for facts. It's where you come for people <laughs> bullshitting about things. So Pretty much. Next up on the iceberg, we got Kurt Busch, Jimmy Spencer, Michigan, 2003. Hell Obviously, Kurt yeah. Busch and Jimmy Spencer. This was one of the most iconic rivalries in the sport. I mean, Jimmy Spencer and Kurt Busch, they hated each other. Oh, yeah. And it wasn't like one do. of those... Oh, that's what I'm saying. Like, it wasn't one of those rivalries that, like, fades away over time. Like, you know, Daryl Waltrip and, and, and uh, Mike, Mike, uh, I'm sorry, not Mike, and Dale Sr. Daryl Waltrip and Dale Sr. They hated each other on the track for a long time. They were rivals. Then after both of them kind of retired and, you know, things kind of tempered down, they were friends. They hung out. They talked to each other. They didn't hate each other anymore. A Dale, lot of rivalries are like retire, that. but, you know. I don't well, think yeah, Daryl hadn't retired Dar- either. Had uh, was Daryl racing in 2000? No, Daryl no, had the... just retired. Yeah, he had right. just retired. He was, so, he okay, they hadn't even moved. retired, but you know their careers were you know winding down. They were getting older. The, the rivalry. Daryl actually out. drove Dale's car. Yes. Yeah. In in 1999. Nine. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, Daryl drove Dale's car. The rivalry was basically gone, and that's how a lot of rivalries go. Eventually, they kind of fade out, and maybe they don't make up. Maybe they're not like friends, but you know they don't go on just letting this other person live rent-free in their head. Um, unless you are Jimmy Spencer or Kurt <laughs> Busch, because these two The two pettiest motherfuckers that I know of. <laughs> they are, the, exactly, that's the word for it. They are the pettiest motherfuckers. And, like, I remember um, after Jimmy Spencer had retired and Kurt Busch is still racing, Jimmy Spencer, with his little segment on, uh, on what was it? What was his show on Speed? It was Race Hub Race that he was Hub. on? Yeah, so when no, it was Loudmouth. Loudmouth. I think that was it. Maybe, maybe. Well, anyways, he was on a show on Speed, one of the NASCAR talk shows. I don't know. There's been like a million of them. And uh, they always had the, the Jimmy Vickernism Spencer segment. Thing. It was yeah. a Jimmy Spencer segment where Vickernism came up. Yeah. And he so would Jimmy roast Spencer, people. Yeah, he would just spend his 10 minutes roasting the shit out of people, you know, being an asshole, being Jimmy Spencer. It was always a great time. But every week he would find something. Something about Kurt Busch to point out and to basically talk shit about him, and it was hilarious. But the 2003 Michigan incident was definitely one of the mo- more uh, iconic moments from the rivalry. Uh, do you want to explain exactly what happened there, Cam? So um, I, I think it was. I think it all starts at Bristol. Okay, so Bristol for Kurt Busch's first win, he moved Jimmy Spencer out of the way. To win the race. And Jimmy, who was, you know, a veteran, been around a while, 
had a lot of respect from the guys in the garage. Not sure why people respected Jimmy Spencer, but he'd been there for a long time. <laughs> um, so he moves him to get his first win at Bristol. Jimmy's not happy. Kurt's like, you know, young, hotshot, rookie guy. Jimmy doesn't like him. Fast forward a little bit. Kurt and Jimmy have raced each other for a while. They go to the brickyard. And Jimmy just flat out dumps Kurt Busch. Just flat out takes him out. Hits a wall going 200. It's bad. And Kurt gets out of the car. Comes down the track. You know, he does all his little gestures. He he shows his... He literally turns around and shows his ass to Jimmy Spencer. And like pats himself. Like he's telling Jimmy Spencer to kiss his ass. Which is hilarious. And then they go to Michigan. So... In the race at Michigan, Kurt wrecks Jimmy. And everybody's like, oh, they're just not, you know, getting over this whole thing. They're just going to let this rivalry continue. Well, <laughs> Jimmy Spencer didn't leave. Jimmy Spencer waits for Kurt Busch to leave the garage after the race. Corners him in between two of the haulers. And bitch smacks the shit out of Kurt Busch. <laughs> <laughs> just, just fucking, fucking open hands fucking sma- pimp slaps this motherfucker. And then, <laughs> you know, the next week it's just all, you know, Kurt Busch is taking out restraining orders and he's gonna he's gonna file a battery suit against Jimmy Spencer and all this stuff. It, ah, it's crazy. It was crazy. But yeah. Kurt and Jimmy wrecked each other a few times on track. They didn't like each other. Kurt finally wrecks Jimmy. He's had enough of it. He corners the guy fucking hits him in the face just clocks him and then that was pretty much the end of it after that whatever happened on track between them after that uh it was just a lot of off-track shit talking um and and yeah it was mostly just shit talking afterwards yeah but it's still funny and it's something that Mm -hmm. jimmy spencer still brings up it's something that my dad still brings up because for a long time my dad did not like kurt bush (laughs) i guess because he liked jimmy spencer um so every time my dad, every time Kurt Busch would do something, my dad would be like, Jimmy Spencer should smack him again. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, man. it didn't do a lot for Kurt's image because, I mean, he got smacked by a grown man in a grown man sport and then, you know, tried to sue him. But, you know. Yeah. Um, and I feel like, okay, so next up on the iceberg is the digger cam. But right after that is the Kurt Busch Radio Sweetheart. I feel like we should just knock out the Kurt Busch Radio Sweetheart. Oh, we definitely kinda, should. We're, we're already kind of talking about Kurt, so it makes no sense to quit now, right. talk about the digger cam, and then go back to Kurt. So, Kurt Busch Radio Sweetheart. Um, the Radio Sweetheart was another segment on Jimmy Spencer's show, mm-hmm. and basically he would give it to whatever driver had the most say. The most colorful um, audio. Yeah, the most colorful language, the most uh, entertaining soundbox from the in-car radio. And nine times out of ten, it's just Kurt Busch. Every week. Most Every of the time single it week, Bush. it was Kurt Busch. Um, hold on, I'm lagging here. Yeah. There we go. Um, so yeah, Kurt Busch was notorious for blowing up on the radio. Uh, with such gems, you may know him from such hits as You're All Fucking Fired. Uh, we fell the shit in the last half, just like every fucking week, because we're a bunch of pieces week. of fucking shit. <laughs> <laughs> and also, fuck! Yes. Uh, it was another, is another, uh, yes. 
real gem of Kurtz. And actually, if you look it up, you can find a remix. Somebody did the NASCAR on Fox theme song. Um, but instead of the guitar, it's just Kurt Busch saying fuck remix to be with the music. It's amazing. Well, it's it was beautiful. it was honestly it was great because you if you go back, you can you can find all stuff on YouTube now. But you can see the progression of Kurt Busch's career, right? So he got fired from Roush because they didn't like him. And you can hear him on the radio berating people. You know, that's yeah. that's the, we fell apart in the last half of the race just like we do every fucking week. Then you can hear, you can hear, <laughs> you can hear him literally cuss out Roger Penske yeah. at Martinsville, which was like the final straw. Yeah. <laughs> and he loses his job at Penske. Then you can hear him bitching at everybody when he goes to the shitty teams because he got, he just got dropped from Roush and Penske. So he goes to Phoenix racing in the 51 yeah. car. And he bitches about that, too. And then you can hear Kevin Harvick whining on his radio. <laughs> he's he's like, uh, holy fucking shit, I can't do this anymore. And, the, and then Rodney Childers is like, what, what's going on? He says, the fucking 51 just passed us. But yeah. Kurt, Kurt Busch is one of my favorite people on the radio because he he honestly reminds me of myself, just cussing oh, yeah. and screaming and raising hell about everything the whole time. But goddamn it, he was getting it done. Oh yeah, yeah. Kurt, uh, he's always been a hell of a driver. Very. I mean, he's he's one of the drivers that he's driven for everybody now. Oh, I yeah. mean, he's literally driven for everybody. Kurt Busch is now the guy. Shit. Like, if you want to make your shitty team decent. Hire Kurt Busch. Yeah. What's the worst that can happen? He, he's he's going to be so hard on everybody that they'll either quit or get better. Exactly. <laughs> and and that's basically why Trackhouse brought him on. I mean... Uh, or not Trackhouse, I'm sorry. Uh, 2311, yeah. 2311 brought him on because they're like, yeah, we know Bubba isn't really going to bring us much information. They're I cannot gonna, wait. He's not going to elevate for, this team. I cannot wait for after the Daytona 500 when Kurt is bitching about Bubba. Because it's oh going to happen. It is it's, going to dude, happen. He is going to bitch about his teammate. That is undoubted. Especially at the plate races. He's going to bitch about Bubba so much. Oh, yeah. Because Bubba's aggressive on the plate races. He's mm-hmm. he's like, not, he's he's not looking out for teammates. He doesn't give a fuck. No. No. Well, especially after what happened to him in the last couple of years. Where he's like, you know, expecting the Gibbs cars to work with him and they don't. Especially Kyle Busch. Yeah. Yeah, Kyle Busch was not going to... He was having none of that, but... Yeah, I, I mean, I'm curious to see what Kurt can do in what is essentially Gibbs equipment over at 2311. Um, it'll be it'll be interesting to see, and the dynamic between him and Bubba is going to be something, but... Yeah, that's Kurt Busch, Radio Sweetheart. We got, like, half this iceberg left. That's why we're trying to get through these a little quicker. Um, next up, Digger Cam. I don't really know why this is on the iceberg. Essentially, what the Digger Cam was, was... Uh, NASCAR put a camera in the ground, uh, and they did this just because it looked cool when the cars drove over it. And they had a little, like, mascot for this camera. And the mascot was like this, uh, was it like a... Like a little gopher? groundhog or a gopher. Like a little ground... Yeah, it was a groundhog digger. And for some reason, they tried to merchandise the shit out of digger. I remember going to Watkins Glen the first year that the digger cam was a thing. And there was a whole ass merchandise hauler, like one that you'd see for a driver. 
gopher. And it was, it, was, gopher. it was the fucking gopher. <laughs> <laughs> and there were people walking around wearing digger hats and, and, and digger shirts. And I'm like, at the time, I like I don't know, this was like, what, 2011, 2012, that digger cam was a thing? I think so, so yeah. At the time, I'm like 13, 14 years old, and even I'm thinking this shit's stupid. I'm like, what the fuck is this, you know? <laughs> and, uh, I don't know, then then on the broadcast, they, they would always, like, show the little, like, animation of the gopher groundhog thing running around. Um, it was like a little 2D animation that would play when they switched to the camera. And then they had a cartoon. I don't know if you knew about this, Cam. There was a digger cartoon. Yep. They made a, like whole, a whole cartoon ass, show. Like a whole ass cartoon. I don't understand what they like why they put so much time and effort into a mascot for a fucking camera angle. It's Fox, like, man. It's, like it's there has Fox. been You know, the other day I was watching a video and it was like top five most absurd mascot cartoons, because like uh a, a long time ago, and some of our viewers may be too young to remember this, but mascot cartoons were basically the only kind of cartoons. Yeah. Um cartoons existed as commercials. Like they Body existed dogs, to sell like shit. Yes. And like on this video talking about absurd mascots that had cartoons, they were like, oh, the California Raisins had a cartoon. How crazy is that? I'm like, motherfucker, NASCAR made a cartoon about a camera angle. <laughs> Get out of here with your fucking California Raisins. That ain't shit. <laughs> that is not the weirdest cartoon that's ever been made. Um, but yeah, that was the Digger Cam. They abandoned it like not, not long after. Could you imagine? Do you imagine being a fan of the Digger it? Cam? No, could you imagine being a fan of the Digger Cam? You yeah, they buy stopped doing it. You, bu- you buy a bunch of merchandise. You got your Digger shirt, your Digger hat, your Digger die cast. You got, you got your whole family wearing the officially branded Digger slap bracelets. It's like you, know, you literally watch bracelets. the race for Digger. Like you don't like any of the yeah. drivers. You <laughs> just watch for Digger. You just watch it for Digger. And then they quit doing it a year later. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> oh man what a what a shit show that was anyway from cute cartoon gophers to uh possible death next thing on the iceberg is we're talking about a lot of driver death right now uh well this is potential driver death yes next gen test dummies ah yes so this is the thing that had everyone buzzing around october yeah this is a pretty short story basically uh test dummies have these little like stickers that you slap on them and they track g-forces and they turn a different color depending on whether or not the injury would have been um no injury uh i think there's like a certain color for like broken bones or whatever and then the final color is they fucking dead like if it turns red the sticker turns red they fucking dead (laughs) and apparently nascar was doing some crash testing with the next gen car and when it hit the wall, the stickers turned red. So essentially what it was saying was, yeah, this car in its current state, drivers will die if they hit the wall uh, at a certain speed. And like the G-forces were actually less than like some of the recorded hits that we've had over the last few years. So yeah. in, in theoretically, in the next-gen car, as it was then, I'm sure they've made improvements since then, but as it was then, if Jeff Gordon, for example, if his Las Vegas wreck had been in a next-gen car, he may have died. Yes. Um, because that wreck exceeded the G-forces that were applied in this crash test. So, yeah, the next-gen car was not safe for a while. There was a lot of drama. Oh, the drivers were talking about it. A bunch of the fans were talking about it. It was one of those things that like got leaked. 
It's one of those. It's one of those fucking Reddit NASCAR things where it's like somebody hears something from somebody and tells the whole fucking world and everyone's up in arms about it. And then NASCAR just comes out and was like, yeah, that didn't happen. Yeah. Yeah. Although, to be fair, even if it did happen, NASCAR would say that didn't happen. Yes. <laughs> so I don't know if it happened or not. It could be true. It could not be true. I wouldn't be surprised if it is true because if you've seen the firewall on these cars, it, it is basically non-existent. It's weird. These, these cars look a lot more brittle than uh, the cars we had before. So I could see it. I mean, look at Ryan Blaney. What happened to him in the clash? He, he got into the wall and the car fell apart. Yes. So, I mean, I could see it being real, but uh, for legal purposes, it wasn't real. We're not saying that it was real. Yeah, that's next-gen test dummies. Talladega stolen pace car. That's the next oh, thing on the iceberg. Oh, baby. Now, this is a fun story. You ever, uh, you ever get drunk and you just do some dumb shit? I feel like that's an experience we've Most all had. Most people me, have, yeah. Me personally, uh, you know, there's been times where I was plastered and, and I was chasing cats around in circles in a garage for about half an hour. That's about the dumbest thing I've ever done while drunk. However, somebody at Talladega one day decided, you know what? I'm going to steal the fucking pace car, and I'm going to make some laps. So, this man, this legend, this American hero, this icon, jumps over the pit road wall as, like, because he knew the door was going to be locked. If I'm remembering correctly, he actually timed it where, like, somebody was getting out of the car. Yes. And while the door was open, he just fucking yeeted over the wall. Just got pushed in the that dude bitch. Got in that bitch and floored it. And he made probably four or five laps. Uh, he made a couple laps, while, yeah. All the while, people are trying to stop this dude. The fucking police and, cars <laughs> are out there chasing him. Yeah, they got like sirens on. They're trying to stop him. And then what eventually brought him to a halt <laughs> was actually fucking, just blockaded the track. He's put with pickup <laughs> trucks. With pickup trucks. Yeah, Cam just pulled up a picture. Um, they blocked the track with pickup trucks from the outside wall all the way down to the uh, the infield wall. And that's what eventually stopped him. He did get arrested. Now, here's the thing, Cam. I'm looking at that picture of the blockade. There's a little bit of a gap there. Oh, he could have shot the gap. If this gap. man was serious, he could have shot that gap. But, uh, yeah. So, the, the suspect, not suspect, we know this motherfucker. Yeah, we, knew, we knew it was him. Was 20-year-old Darren Crowder. So, 20 years old, this man's already making an impact on history. What a legend. Uh, the article reads as follows. 20-year-old Darren Crowder was the man who would later find himself behind the wheel of a pace car. But he started his day quite differently. Crowder was a married father of one, and his wife was battling cancer. He decided to purchase a motorcycle because it was cheaper than a car. And on, his per on this particular Sunday morning, he made a trip from Birmingham, Lincoln, Alabama, all the way to go to look at a bike that he wanted to buy. While he took the bike out for a test drive, he ended up taking a little bit of a detour. So he's taking this bike that he doesn't even own to Talladega. The article goes on to say, Now Talladega Super Speedway wasn't far from Lincoln, so Crowder ended up getting stuck in traffic among those attending the stock car event. Even despite not having a shirt on, he followed the line of cars to the racetrack and somehow managed to slip through all the way to the infield without ever being asked for a ticket. Seeing as it was a great sport to wa or a great spot to he watch, he just drove past all the security guards. <laughs> He decided to stay there for the race. Dillard Munford was the Grand Marshal of this race, and Larry Bolinsky was supposed to be piloting the Pontiac Trans Am pace car. At least that was the plan. As Munford stood on the start-finish line to tell the drivers to start their engines, Crowder saw an opportunity and didn't think twice. He hopped two fences, bolted towards the pace car, which had the key still inside, and before anyone knew what was happening, Crowder took off in the car. 
nearly hitting a few people on the track in the process, because they're out here giving the starting command. Um, he even managed to do a complete lap doing 100 miles an hour down the backstretch before officials were even notified. By the time Crowder finished his lap, police cars and motorcycles jumped into action. They decided to set up a roadblock in turn four to put an end to the joyride. Amazingly, the whole event was televised, and you can hear the announcers talking about the craziness in the clip. So yeah, this crazy son of a bitch test drives a motorcycle, which he does not own, many miles to Talladega, gets all the way to the infield without being asked for a ticket, and then steals the pace This car. is the most cold trickle shit I've ever heard. Like, he just drives <laughs> in on a motorcycle and no one questions him. He <laughs> like, just jumps in the pace. Hey, this legend. motherfucker was on the backstretch before the officials even knew the pace car was gone. Yeah, And he almost no, hit like... a bunch of people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's just bolting down the backstretch at 100 mile an hour, and they're like, uh, who's in the pace car? Not me. Oh, shit. <laughs> we done fucked up here, mate. And if anybody's wondering what charges he was facing, uh, the article finishes with Crowder was taken to a Talladega County jail and held on a $10,000 bond. As if racing or as if facing charges for unauthorized use of a motor vehicle, resisting arrest, grand theft auto, and attempted assault wasn't enough, it was also rumored that he attacked another inmate with a boot while in jail. Jesus he was Christ. later transferred to a psychiatric hospital for evaluation. There's not much word about what happened past this point, but no jail sentences were ever reported for him regarding the pace car incident. <laughs> so this man, uh. after all the insane shit we just talked about, he gets to county jail, takes off his boot, and beats a motherfucker with it. <laughs> I don't know, man. I, I wish he was a race car driver. I would have definitely rooted for that guy. You know what? I, I, this is what I think happened. I think he changed his name. He could have. I think he's Russell Phillips. <laughs> oh, man. That's the what real Russell story. Phillips. I don't know. I feel like... Maybe that's just, like, an innocence of somebody having, like, a mental break. Like, his wife's battling Well, yeah, cancer. I mean, he had a lot going on. Yeah, you know, this dude his... had some shit on his plate. He's got a one-year-old kid, doesn't know, you know, what the hell situation is for the mom. He just goes out here, and he's like, you know what? I've been Fuck a good it. guy all my life. Fuck it. I'm cutting loose today. I, I respect the shit out of it. I respect the absolute shit out of it. Aaron Crescent, you are man. a legend wherever you are. Yeah. This nuts. Next up on the iceberg, we have Ah, Tony Stewart shit and win. That's a good one. Hell yeah. <laughs> so uh, what year this. was that? Yeah, look up the exact year. We're gonna do some research live in the field here, ladies and gentlemen. So <laughs> the article. <laughs> the poop race. The video that came out. NASCAR's shittiest win. <laughs> <laughs> the poop race and ask our shittiest win by David Wayne. Okay, 2004. Yeah, yeah. It's 2004. So, imagine this. You are Tony Stewart in 2004. You're at Watkins Glen. This is a track you're good at. This is actually one of your best tracks on the entire circuit. And you're leading the race. But in your bowels, you feel a demon. A rumbling demon which you know will escape. And you also know that you could park the car, you could get out, you could get a backup driver, most teams have one on call. But Tony's like, nah, nah dog, I'm in the lead, I'm gonna win this shit. 
Literally. So, so uh, with the upset stomach, he continues to drive, eventually shits himself at some point, wins the race, and does not go to victory lane, does not do any of the post-race stuff. He instead goes directly to his motor coach, comes out wearing a t-shirt and jeans, then goes to victory lane and celebrates. And uh, that's the story of the Tony Stewart shit and win. My man's shitted his whole self and still won the race. Yes. Savage. And so, for everybody asking, like, oh, do NASCAR drivers just shit and piss themselves all the time? Like, yes. no, they don't. Because <laughs> yes. if they did, <laughs> if they did, I don't think the Tony Stewart shit and win would be, uh, like, Well, a, here's the thing. I, I think story. they do probably piss themselves pretty probably. often. Probably. But I don't think they shit very much. Yeah. No, I think that was a one-time deal. <laughs> now, Carl Edwards did throw up. He did vomit, like, in his helmet. That was, a. Uh, that was pretty that was bad. Thing that happened. But anyways, next up on the iceberg, we got kid-friendly merch. Now, obviously, uh, a lot of NASCAR vehicles and teams are sponsored by adult substances, uh, alcohol, tobacco back in the day before we were banned from sponsoring or uh, advertising tobacco. And uh, when a team would make merchandise, whether it be die-cast or shirts or whatever, um, they could not have the alcoholic sponsors on the merchandise that was meant for kids. So they'd make die casts that were meant specifically for kids. So like you'd have a Dale Jr. die cast, and then instead of saying uh, Bud Light, or Budweiser, not Bud Light, sorry, Budweiser, it would just say Dale Jr. in like the same font. It would be the same font as the sponsor, but it would just say the driver's name instead of. Uh, so like if you bought like a, a Sterling Marlin die cast instead of Coors Light, so it would say Sterling, which yeah. is and it which would be is in why, the which is why to this day, if I'm talking to Dirt, I'll tell him I'm having a couple of cold Sterlings. Oh yeah, Cam and I, we don't even like we don't even say Coors Light hardly anymore. We just call them Sterlings, um, <laughs> and that's uh, that's pretty much why. But uh, it, obviously, a lot of listeners maybe didn't collect diecast or anything. But if you ever played any NASCAR game ever, uh, that's how it used to be in uh like the old ea nascar games dale jr's car just said dale jr sterling's car just said sterling kurt bush's car just said kurt uh back when it was rusty wallace and it was miller light it just said rusty which is really funny because i'm imagining like <laughs> uh, a alcohol called rusty <laughs> <laughs> and i'm like oh that sounds horrible um <clears throat> it was good stuff but- but yeah, that's the kid-friendly merch. Um, I don't really know why it's on the iceberg. I feel but like we that's also kinda... had, like you mentioned before, Digger merch. Yeah. That's another thing that happened, so that was for the kids. Yeah, yeah, we did have the kid-friendly Digger merch. Um, but yeah, I, again, I'm not entirely sure why that was on the iceberg, especially on Tier 2. I feel like literally anybody who's played a NASCAR game knows about the kid-friendly like sponsor replacements. Yeah. But I do know that, like, when I was younger, I'd ha- like, and I would go to the track and I'd get like die casts of my favorite drivers or whatever at the haulers. I would have to have my dad buy the die cast for like Dale Jr. and stuff because otherwise they wouldn't sell a kid like the actual Budweiser car. They'd sell him the one that just said Dale Jr. Like, I want that shit because that's not what he drives. Yeah. <laughs> I, well, I mean, I remember being eight years old and playing NASCAR Thunder 2004 and being so fucking mad because I would get. I would get like a contract offer, right? 
And they'd be like, come drive the number two car. And then when you go to the sponsorship screen, it says your package sponsor, Rusty. I'm like, what the fuck? It's just Rusty. Just, just <laughs> Miller Light. I know what it is. Yeah, like we watch the races. We're not. Yeah. But yep, yeah, that's uh, the kid friendly merch. Next up on the list, we've got everybody's favorite rule that oh has come and went. God, finally something to get pissed about. The overtime line. So, I'm not even sure I can fully explain the overtime line. Because it's been a few years since they did it, and it was a ridiculously overly convoluted rule. I think how it worked was, okay, so originally, we just had green-white checkers. If a caution came out before the white flag, if it was, you know, two to go, well then... Another green-white checker. Yeah, another green-white checkered. If caution came out on the white flag, that's it. Race over. That's how it was for a long time. But NASCAR, in their infinite quest to emulate stick-and-ball sports, decided to add an overtime line. And what this was was an arbitrary point on the back straightaway of any given track. Usually wherever half of a lap has been completed. Yeah, but it wasn't always half a lap. Sometimes it was, like, right out of turn two, and sometimes yeah. it was all the way down at turn three. Like, the they line would be in a weird place all the time. Yeah, and so basically, if it was two laps to go, and caution came out before they got to that line, then they would do a green-white checker. But if caution came out after the overtime line... After the leader passed over. the overtime line. Yeah, after the leader cro crossed over, then the race was over. So what ended up happening was NASCAR would make these rulings of, like, a wreck would happen... And NASCAR would have to freeze frame it to see exactly where the leaders were when the lights came on. And you'd have half the drivers saying, no, we didn't make it to the overtime line. And then you have other drivers saying, yeah, no, we made it, we made it. And it was just another arbitrary rule that was really difficult to enforce with any ounce of consistency because nobody could agree on where the actual line was. And you could tell there were times where they manipulated it. They were like, oh, yeah, they... um." Like, there were times where they would let them, like, a wreck would happen as soon as they restarted. The drivers would drive halfway around the track while they're wrecking, cross the overtime line, and then NASCAR would throw the caution. It depended on who was leading, too. Yeah, it was It was really dependent on who was leading. Like, if they wanted, like, if Chase Elliott was leading, they were going to let him get to the line, throw the caution. Oh, he won. Yeah. And that's basically how it worked. Uh, it was bullshit. Which, it was I'm going to be rule. honest, I don't think the overtime, the overtime line was stupid. Right, I hate it, but I still don't think the overtime line is worse than scoring loops. Oh, I agree. I mean, they're both bullshit. The scoring loop thing was so bad. But anyway, yeah, overtime line, dumb, stupid. Glad they don't do it anymore. Yeah, fuck the overtime line. Next up, Denny Hamlin Adderall addiction. I mean, it's Denny Hamlin. Now, I don't know. If Denny Hamlin was ever actually addicted to Adderall, I, I don't know if this is like a factual thing. Maybe this is something that gets passed around the garage. I don't know. But I know that it was brought to my attention when Bubba Wallace was pissed off at him. And uh, I think it was after Daytona. Denny Hamlin kind of doored Bubba Wallace, wrecked him out of the wind. And Bubba said, I don't know what was wrong with Denny. I guess he needs more Adderall. So that kind of sparked some speculation like does Denny's competition know something that we don't? Like is Denny like hooked on Adderall and that's why he's so good? <laughs> like like 
obviously Adderall is kind of a problem in motorsports. We saw it with like James Stewart in uh, the AMA. We saw it with um, one of the F1 drivers, I think. I can't remember who, but we've seen it in a few different disciplines. And there's rumors, I guess, that circulated that uh, Denny Hamlin is on Adderall. I don't fully know if it's true, but yeah, that's the rumor. Well, as Denny Denny comes out and says basically that 70% of NASCAR drivers are using Adderall. Okay, it's not that Denny is the one that's addicted to Adderall, is what we're saying. Denny is saying that 70% of the drivers in NASCAR are addicted to Adderall. So he brought he so he basically brought Bubba's comments on himself because he's like, oh yeah, y'all yes. are doing Adderall, and it's kind of like, kind of I would perceive that as like projection almost. You and know, you know what? I'm gonna be honest here. If there's a single fucking driver out here that's doing Adderall, it's either Denny Hamlin or Joey Logano. Oh yeah. If, he, he if anyone is taking Adderall, it's Denny or Joey. Is nobody else? Denny's interviews are weird, man. He d- he doesn't act right. Like like anytime he's got the camera on, the way that he speaks, the way he like formulates his sentences, his general tone, like I could see him being on something. Well, might not be Adderall. It might be you know the two finger Denny, but whatever. Yeah, it could be. But that's Denny <laughs> Hamlin Adderall. Next up on the list, this is I'm going to hand this off to you, Cam, because you might know a little bit more about this than I do. I honestly don't know the full story here, but Nashville residents. Nashville residents. All right. So we just went back to Nashville last year uh, for the Cup Series, and it's been kind of a big thing recently. I know Dale Jr. has been very outspoken about it, that uh, NASCAR wants to go back to the Nashville Fairgrounds Speedway, which is a place where... You know, a lot of people, including Daryl Waltrip, cut their teeth in the late model ranks and did a lot of racing there. And NASCAR Cup Series races were held at the fairgrounds for a long time. Um, you know, National Fairgrounds is just one of those famous short tracks. You know, it's a big thing in the southeast and all the guys that are from around here and did the late model stuff really enjoy the place. Now, National Fairgrounds has got an issue. It's actually in Nashville. And whenever NASCAR builds a racetrack and they say, you know, oh, the Miami Speedway, it's not in fucking Miami because you can't build a big ass racetrack with all the parking space and all the noise that a racetrack is going to cause in the middle of a city because people are going to get pissed about it because not everybody likes auto racing. Newsflash. I mean, those people are wrong, but still. So Nashville, the city is trying to bring back the Nashville Fairgrounds Speedway or at least, you know, the Nashville Super Speedway. And everyone in Nashville has got something to say about it. So you got the race fans in Nashville that want it. They want to have a race in their, you know, home city. And they're all excited. And, of course, all the NASCAR people are behind it, too. The people that are running... You know, Nashville, like the city council people, they want it because it's going to bring money. Anytime you have a big sporting event, uh, it's going to bring money to the area. But the residents, a lot of them do not want 
a racetrack. They hate racing. They do not want it. They don't want the pollution. They don't want the people. They don't want the noise. And this woman, this one particular woman, shows up at the council meeting and is just screaming at people. The the, the ultimate of the Karens, right? Um, and she's basically just out there speaking on behalf of all the citizens in her little community. Uh, talking about how we don't want a racetrack coming in here and ruining our community. And the community she lives in was built in 1978. The National Fairgrounds Speedway was built in 1936. So the track's been there 40 years longer than this woman's community. Uh, and she's worried about the Speedway impeding on her. So, really, it's all the Nashville residents. Um, a lot of them are mad at each other because some of them want to race in Nashville. Some of them don't want to race in Nashville. Most of the people that don't want an NASCAR race in Nashville don't know what they're talking about. Yeah, they, they don't, don't understand the, the economic value well, they, they don't that see, an event like that holds. They don't follow racing, so they don't know the things that they're actually talking about. So like, Yeah, they, they like, have no clue. This woman's like, oh, well, they already do, you know, late model races that I don't like at Nashville, so I don't want more races. Well, th the thing about it, lady, is that if Cup is going to start racing at Nashville, that doesn't mean more racing at Nashville. It means less. There's going to be less yeah. events because the one event is so big, they're not going to do as many of them. Exactly. So, anyway, the Nashville Fairgrounds thing didn't happen. Um... A lot of it had to do with uh, money that would have been needed to upgrade the track, you know, adding grandstands and things like that. A lot of it had to do with, you know, the lady that lived in the community that was built after the racetrack was built, uh, not wanting the race to be happening. So they just did it at Nashville Super Speedway, which is 30 minutes away from actual Nashville, because that's what we end up doing with most of our races. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, the Nashville residents at the city council meeting that weren't very really making much sense got their way. Yeah, it, it is a shame because I, I can't stand that shit when like people move into an area and there's a racetrack there and they're like, wait a minute, I don't like this noise pollution. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, you should have done your research before you moved in, you dipshit. Well, it's like it's the same thing. And this this it really hurts my feelings because one of my favorite short tracks was Myrtle Beach. Yeah, I and was killed by that. Myrtle Beach Speedway was there. Like, it was built in, like, the 50s. Like, it's been there for a long time. And when it was built, obviously, when you build a racetrack, there's nothing around it. You got plenty of room for parking. You know, you had to get the dirt to build the banking up from somewhere. So, like, you know, the whole area around the track is just nothing. It's big fields. But since Myrtle Beach Speedway is right there on the side of an interstate... At a busy place like the beach is a big tourist destination, and a lot of people wanted to move there. So, when you know people with lots of money buy land next to a racetrack because it's cheap, and then they want to use that land to build housing developments, people move into those housing developments because they're cheap, and then they use their citizen status, I suppose, to kill the racetrack because they don't like it. But you're the one that moved next to a racetrack to begin with. 
Yeah. I mean, by the time, died. by the time Myrtle Beach actually died, there were literally on the other side of the out on the backstretch wall, like 200 feet the other side of the wall, was someone's house. Yeah. And I fail to see how that the racetrack's fault. It's just not. It just straight up isn't. I mean, the racetrack was there before the house, and yeah, the the track can't move. No, Pe- people can no. move. Racetracks cannot. Yeah, and what really pisses me off too is like, as I mentioned with the Nashville Fairgrounds. Having a race, especially one as big as NASCAR, is so valuable to you, like your local economy. The amount of money that it brings in, because it's not just people buying tickets. It's people coming to watch the race that are going to get snacks and beer and water from your local stores. It's people who are going to stop at the local restaurants after the race or before the race. It is such a huge surge to your local economy. It literally benefits everybody. The hotels that are around the track. Hotels, yep. Everything. And it's like, it, it, people can grasp the concept because people are like, oh, Cleveland's economy is based on their sports. Like we, <laughs> It's based on LeBron James. Games. Yeah. But yet, when it comes to racing, like they, somehow they just don't recognize that. It's, it's insane. It's just, and, and the whole point is that they don't like that. Yeah. And I I don't understand like if if there's somebody that I I guess it has to be the noise factor right so if you build an NFL stadium you're gonna use you know you're gonna play games there you're gonna have concerts there for some reason people don't have a problem with concerts concerts make noise but uh, you know everybody likes music I guess mm-hmm. so they don't complain about that and nobody complains about the football game either because oh it's a football stadium but everybody's got a problem with the racetrack yeah. I don't know. Yeah, it's bullshit. Anyways, we've only got uh, five things left on this tier of the iceberg. Next one up is Ryan Newman's path to the final four. <laughs> Essentially, uh, again, in, wait, uh, what year was this? <laughs> 2015, I think. Was it 2015? Something like that. Let's, uh, well, you go to racing reference, probably, and look at what year he finished, like second or whatever That's in the true. points. True. There's my racing reference. Yeah, well, let's find out exactly what year this was. Ryan Newman finished second in points back in 2014. Okay. Yeah, 2014. It it was 2014. So he essentially... Without winning a race. Without winning a race. Nearly won the entire championship, and he did it by just murdering everybody that got in his way. <laughs> by and doing could, the bare fucking minimum. And if he could have murdered Tony Stewart to win the championship, he would have. He'd have done it. Um... Obviously, one of the more standout moments from this absolute wrecking ball of a run through the playoffs, uh, or I guess it was still the the chase back then, um, essentially was at Phoenix when Kyle Larson and Ryan Newman were basically tied for points, so whoever beat the other guy was moving on to Homestead. Uh, And on the last lap of the race, Ryan Newman and uh, Kyle Larson were racing with each other. Kyle Larson was up in front of Ryan Newman, so it looked like he was going to progress. No, 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 no. Kyle Larson was not in the playoffs. 
Oh, he oh, right. Kyle Larson was not in, but he Some, was still, wor- he was still was, worth points. Yeah, somebody that was behind Ryan entering that race. Yeah, finished in front of him, like crossed the line of like fifth or something. Yeah, and Ryan so he was needed running every like point eleventh. He, he was running like eleventh, and the crew chief comes over and tells Ryan Newman that he needs one more spot to make it to Homestead. Yep, and Kyle Larson was ahead of him, and Kyle Larson was that spot. And so, Newman just kind of sent her in deep there, bud. Murdered the old 42 card, got just into the final four. fucking walled him off turn four. Oh, yeah. It, it, was, it, was, it was actual manslaughter. Absolute manslaughter. Um, and then uh, he got to Homestead, nearly won it. He finished second uh, in the race and in the championship. So He nearly exposed the playoff system. Way before the Matt Crafton ever did. The year it started. Yep. Yep. So and I that was, wish I wish he'd done it. I wish amazing. he had exposed it like literally as it was starting. How absolutely would have been amazing. But yeah, that whole season. I mean, he only had five top fives and sixteen top tens in thirty six races. <laughs> Not very champion esque. Average finish of sixteenth. Yeah. In a in a championship contending year, average finish of sixteenth. Not great. that is insane. Not great. But yeah, that was Newman's path to the final four. What do we got up next? We have 2016 to Xfinity Talladega finish. Is another really short entry. Um, essentially, there was a big ass wreck at the end of this race. The 22 car got dumped by somebody or another. I don't really uh, remember who. Joey Logano was leading, um, and Elliott Sadler yeah. was in second. Okay, yeah, so it was Joey Logano got dumped by Elliott Sadler. They both end up wrecking, and Brennan Poole in the 48 car wins by a couple thousandths of a second over second place. And uh, that was kind of the highlight of Brennan Poole's career. Huge, huge wreck. But I, I honestly, again, I don't understand why it's on the iceberg because but they cross as far line, as Talladega like goes, wide. yeah, but I mean, as far as Talladega goes, we see that shit every year. Yeah, so I, don't, I don't know why this exactly is on the uh, iceberg, but. After that, we're in the final three things now. Caution. Oh, we block. got we got four. We got one on this next page. Oh, oh, one on the next page. Okay, so we got four more. Caution clock. So the caution clock was an idea dreamed up by Brian France in a cocaine stupor, where he thought, you know what, this racing is just not exciting enough. Um, and at this time, he had not yet thought up the invention of stages. So he decided, well. You know, I want to bunch up the field. You know, once the field starts getting separated, that's when the casual viewers tune out. That's when people quit paying attention. So how do I keep the field close? Well, we're going to have a clock that's counting down from the drop of the green flag. And if we've not had a yellow flag by the time this clock hits zero, we're just going to throw a yellow flag. And we're going to bunch the field up for literally no reason other than we've not had a caution yet. Yes. They implemented this for a very brief period in the Trucks and Xfinity series, I believe. I know it was in Trucks. I'm not 100% sure it was ever in Xfinity, but I feel like it was. I think I remember seeing that. But um, they implemented it for a very short time, nonetheless. And then not long after that, stages came out. Stages became a thing in like 2016, I think. And then we didn't need the caution clock anymore because stages essentially were the new caution clock. And instead of just one, there was now two caution clocks per race. So that is the story of the caution clock. Moving on, we've got New Hampshire plate race. This was 
shortly after the death of Adam Petty, uh, yeah, Adam Petty and John Nemechek, both these drivers died at New Hampshire. Both of them died, I believe, in practice, actually. Yep. And both of them died via the same problem. They kind of hit the wall driver side first. This was before the safer barrier was a thing, and also before window nets were mandated. And their helmets kind of... No, 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 kinda... no, no, no. Window nets were mandated. And, were they uh, mandated? Yeah. And they didn't hit driver's side. Actually, I think what happened to both of them is... Um, well, I know, Adam... That's where Adam Petty hit driver's side. He, he hit no, driver's side. No, his, his accelerator jammed. He drove straight into the fence. Okay, maybe okay, maybe it was John Nemechek then that hit drive. I think yeah, because John was in a truck. Yes, and he okay. I remember that incident. He was driver side. Adam Penny was not. So Adam had an accelerator jam, and he just you know couldn't stop going into turn three and hit the wall so hard he died. Which of course yeah. this is in the age of concrete walls and all that. So. Yeah, before safer barriers and all that. Um, so because we've had two recent deaths at New Hampshire, NASCAR says New Hampshire is not safe. Let's put a restrictor plate on the cars when we go to New Hampshire. So they did. And it was so unraceable that <laughs> Jeff Burton got the pole. Jeff and Burton. And then proceeded. Jeff Burton got the pole. Led every single lap. 300 laps he led. It's the last time that's ever happened. And won the race. Um, literally nobody could pass him for anything. It, it just didn't happen. So... They abandoned that idea the next year. They were like, okay, we, we can't do that again. But they did it once. They put restrict plates on the car. And it, well, it, fun fact about that, actually, if you ever played NASCAR the game 2011, <laughs> which is a horrible NASCAR game, uh, if you go to New Hampshire, Jeff Burton wins just about every single time. Like, every single fucking time. I feel like it's because somebody, like, looked at the stats from every track and saw that, like, Jeff Burton did that one time and didn't understand yep. why. Yep, so that is exactly <laughs> that is exactly what happened. That's ha That has to be. Because, like, he wasn't consistently good there. <laughs> like, I mean, yeah, it might have been, like, a decent track for him. But I feel like a dev looked at that. They're like, oh, he led every lap here? Well, he's going to win in the game then. And so, yeah, Jeff Burton would win, like, every time there in the game because he did it once in real life. Moving on to our penultimate entry on the iceberg, Rick Crawford. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Oh, Rick Crawford. So, I feel like this doesn't need to be a very long entry. Um, Rick Crawford was a truck series driver. If you ever played Dirt to Daytona, he was unfortunately one of, like, two real drivers in the truck roster in that game. Um, there was not very many real-life drivers, but he oh. was one of them. And a couple years ago, he was arrested for, uh, quote-unquote, enticing a minor. Attempted enticement of a minor, as the uh, law now, men would put it. Now, to, to really let you know how disgusting that is, Rick Crawford was born in 1958. Yeah, and this happened in 2011. 2018. Oh, 2018. <laughs> yeah, that's... 60 years old. 60 years old. Attempted yeah. enticement of a minor. Uh, eventually, he got sentenced. Uh, he got 130 months in federal prison. So, a little over 10 years. So, wow. yeah, Rick Crawford's uh, in jail right now. Yes. He's in the federal pen. So, if you're playing Dirt the Daytona and you see Rick Crawford, go ahead and wreck him. 
Nobody's going to hold it against you. Every time. And the final entry on the iceberg, the one that probably pisses me off the most because he <laughs> never gets any flack for it, and he wants to act like he's some hoity-toity, holier-than-thou piece of shit, but he yes. does this. Kevin Harvick, itchy arm, Talladega 2015. Good lord. Make a long story short. Again, we're in the midst of the chase. The playoffs. Pl- okay, playoffs, 2015. So we're in the midst of the playoffs. And Harvick knows that to get us to get advanced into the next round, he needs a certain amount of points. And he's not having a good day. Kevin Harvick was having a horrible Talladega race. He was constantly behind the competition. And the points were not looking good. So, during a late race restart, what does Kevin Harvick do? He decides, well, they can't beat me in points if they don't finish the race. So he immediately slams the throttle, intentionally spins the tires, causes a massive pileup, which ultimately knocked uh, Dale Jr. out of the playoffs in a year where it really looked like he could win. Uh, Ruined a lot of people's days, tore up a lot of cars, and barely progressed into the next round of the playoffs. Yes. It was the most blatant race manipulation I've ever seen. And for a guy who loves to talk shit about other people, that is absolutely despicable. It's one of the reasons that I do not respect Kevin Harvick. Um, this is a formal challenge. I've issued these before, and, and I will say, but the challenge to... Uh, 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 what's his name? I, I hate him so much, I forgot his name. Um, <laughs> Brandon, Jones. Brandon, Brandon Jones, yes. <laughs> Damn Jones, boy. The, the the challenge to Brandon Jones still stands. I will fight you, Brandon Jones, but I'm now extending another challenge to Kevin Harvick. Meet me behind the Applebee's, you bitch. Oof. But yeah, Kevin Harvick's itchy arm. You got any comments about it, Cam? Um Well Uh it's pretty it's pretty bad. Um I I think it's just as bad as what Michael Walter Bracing did at Richmond. I would say it's worse because at least Michael Walter Bracing only spun out their own car. Kevin Harvick literally tore up half the field. Yeah. Yeah. And it's kind of surprising that they didn't do anything to him because he literally cost Dale Jr. a chance. Yeah. And you know that's NASCAR's favorite boy. Um... But yeah, uh, Kevin Harvick then went on to uh, advance to the championship four. And Kyle Busch, who missed half the season because both of his legs were snapped in half at Daytona, won the <laughs> championship. So thank God that Kyle Busch got the waiver and kept Kevin Harvick from winning the championship. Yeah. That, uh, if Kevin Harvick had won after doing that shit, I, I don't even... I, I couldn't fathom that. That's Kevin Harvick's done a bunch of shit that I think goes under the radar because he's been here so long and he's he's done so much good and impressive stuff that people just overlook all the dumb shit that he's done. But he has done yeah. plenty, and this oh is, he's done a lot of dumb shit. This is way way up the list of dumb shit. Yeah. Um. So if you're listening at home, you don't know what we're talking about. Just look up a video of it. Type in Kevin Harvick Talladega 2015. Um, he will, the video will pop up, you'll be able to see it, and it's pretty blatant. It's, it's pretty bad. It's really obvious. I mean, what was it? It was late in the year, so that was NBC. This was with NBC. Larry McDonald's yeah. and all yeah, that, that bunch. Yeah, it was NBC. 
everybody calls him out. They know yeah. what it was. Oh yeah, like the commentators straight up are not having that bullshit. They're like, well, <laughs> he just. Yeah. Well, I think it was like an overtime restart, and he ended the race by doing that. Yep. That was pretty much the last restart of the race. Yep. So. So it was some horse shit, but that is tier two of the iceberg. Um, I need to look and see what is coming up on part three in the next oh, episode. Let we me... got some good stuff. So we got coming up in tier three: Dale Earnhardt bullying Mark Martin in 1990, Trump Super Speedway, Jeff Gordon Raceway, Elliot Sadler Pocono 2010 crash footage. That crash was wild. Um, let's see, we one. got Extends. Oh, that's a good one. There's the Martinsville Gra- pothole. I thought we'd already covered that, but that'll be in the next one. Brian Vickers ties to Jeffrey Epstein. Yeesh. Um, we've got the Richard Childress Kyle Busch fight. Yeah, that's a good one. We got the Money Team, which is actually now interesting because the Money because Team they're is here be now. A real thing. They're finally yeah. here. Tia yeah, Norfleet. Tia Norfleet's gonna. Yeah, be good. that's that's the entry that's gonna get us canceled for even talking about it. <laughs> um, although as I always say, they can only cancel people who give a shit. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's gonna be really interesting. And then your favorite, Cam, Jeff Gordon, gay rumors. Fuck you. <laughs> oh man. No wait, never mind. That would be gay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so tier three is gonna be fun. We got some other ones we didn't mention, but uh, it'll be it'll be interesting. And then tier four, I'm looking at that too. It, there's a lot of good stuff there too. So uh, stay tuned in. It's gonna be interesting. Uh, I thought this tier was pretty. I, I, I got to be honest, my favorite uh, things from this year, obviously, Russell Phillips. Yeah. Pretty great. I also really enjoyed uh, the Digger entry. <laughs> the Kurt Busch, both of those. Kurt Busch was, was, was pretty fun. good. And uh, and then shitting on the Nashville residents. That was nice. Oh, yeah, yeah. That, was that felt good so, for me. So it's been a fun tier. But that's going to about do it for us here at DNQ. Tune in next week for part three. We are going to see you next time. Yeet.